And for all of us staying, we're going to be going, as Julio mentioned, we're going to be going through the book of Revelation, and we're doing a series for 10 weeks on the book of Revelation. And we're not moving sequentially through the book, but we're taking different snapshots. And our theme is looking at the victory of Jesus and the vision of Trinity. And we're asking, what does the vision or the the victory of Jesus that he's ruling, reigning on his throne, what will that teach us and shape us about who we want to be uh, as a church and as God's people living in God's world? And for the first three weeks, we're going to get a vision of the actual Trinity. So a vision of the heavenly father who's on his throne, a vision of the Holy Spirit who comes down from the throne to transform uh, God's people and God's world, and a vision of the risen and reigning Christ who is both lion and lamb. So this morning we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. So if you grab one of the bulletins coming in, you'll probably be helpful to follow along on the back because we're actually going to jump around to a number of different verses. We're going to start out in chapter 1, verse 4. But we'll move around. And it's interesting as you think, when I say we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure what comes into your mind or what you think about. Um, I was recently at this large conference, and two of like the keynote pastor speakers um, both said in the beginning of their talk that the Holy Spirit has, is the neglected member of the Trinity, and I thought that's an interesting thing to say, and I would, there was a lot of people around, and I was sitting around some people who I love because they're very vocal, and so when they heard him say that, they gave a rowdy, mm-hmm, that's right, and uh, that's helpful, you know, you, you can tell if people are, are tracking along with you. I thought that's an interesting thing. You almost hear that if you've been in churches uh, for a very long time. That's kind of a, something you'll hear often, that people say the Holy Spirit's a neglected member of the Trinity, and I started thinking about, I wonder why... Like, what do we mean when we say that? Why do we think he's neglected? You look at the history of the church, and there's been three kind of high watermark times in the history of the church where the ministry and activity of the Holy Spirit has kind of taken front and center. Um, in the third and fourth century with uh, the Greek Cappadocian fathers, Basil, Gregory, and Gregory, they wrote some of the greatest works in church history on the, the Holy Spirit. Who is he? How does he integrate into the Trinity? And they were from the, the Greek uh, East, and that was in third, fourth century. Kind of the next high watermark was actually in the Reformation. And so you could, um, one name for John Calvin, often he gets caricatured as kind of like this stodgy academic, but he could be called the, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. He wrote more about the person, work, power, presence of the Holy Spirit than any other uh, topic. And then kind of flowing from him in the English-speaking world are some of the greatest works on the Spirit in the uh, 16th and 17th century were from uh, John Owen and Jonathan Edwards in America, writing about the, the transforming power of uh, the religious affections that the Holy Spirit brings into people's lives. So that's kind of the second high watermark. And the third actually is in the 20th century. So if the Lord... Uh, if we're still around in 500 years, we might look back on the 20th century as not only not the neglected era of the Holy Spirit, but the century of the Spirit. And starting in like 1904, 1905, there were these remarkable revivals all across the globe. Happened, um, they were disconnected, but had very similar patterns uh, in L.A. at Azusa Street, in Wales, in South Korea. And there were these remarkable kind of explosions of... Holy Spirit kind of energy. 
And then that led to what became the Pentecostal movement, and then another refreshment in the 50s and 60s that kind of started the charismatic movement. So the charismatic movement then swept through every single uh, Christian denomination and branch, Roman Catholic Church, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestants. And you, if you want to see something unique is you see uh, Eastern Orthodox charismatics. And so the Holy Spirit, you know, we don't need to feel sorry for him as if he's like the neglected wallflower at the middle school dance of the Trinity and nobody gives him any attention or focus. He's very alive. He's very well. He's been very active throughout this century. But I think when people say things like that, it's actually a really good personal confession that I want to experience more of him. Not that he's been neglected in the broad world of the church, because he really hasn't. He's been Jesus' active agent to build his church for 2,000 years. But that I want to experience more of him, more of his presence, more of his power, more of his work. And that's one of the most powerful and profound things that we can desire or pray for. Real, living, vibrant Christians and real, living, vibrant churches experience the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So I think you can say... Uh, that of the three, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, he's probably the most mysterious. He's one of the hardest for us to conceptualize because we kind of have categories for thinking about God as Father, God as Son, but Spirit is a little more mysterious. I put in the email yesterday that uh, Cynthia wanted me to adjust. She's a theological editor. and said, he's the shy member of the Trinity. She says, well, you're going to have to explain that. And uh, what I mean by that is that he's a shy member. He doesn't often bring uh, attention to himself. You know, to use other categories we might use, he's more of the, maybe the introverted member of the Trinity. His whole goal is to do the work behind the scenes in the background that bring attention to someone else. So he exists to exalt and bring attention to the Son and to glorify the Father. He's kind of like a, he's like a light, but a light that you would put on your house that would shine light on the home. Uh, The whole goal of that light is not to bring attention to itself, but it's to illuminate the house. You know, it's not like a Christmas light. Christmas lights exist in all of their obnoxious color and flashing to bring attention to themselves. The Holy Spirit's not a Christmas light. He's a, he's a floodlight. He wants to illuminate something else. And what he wants to illuminate is the person and work of the, the Son. So let's look today. We're going to look at the Holy Spirit in Revelation. And we're going to take a tour and hop around. And we're going to look first at his designation, his operation, and then his invitation. So who is he? What does he do? And how can we experience him? What's his call? So his designation, his invitation his operation. So first his designation. Look in chapter 1 verse 4. This is start the great greeting from John where he gives this beautiful trinitarian greeting. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. It's a reference to the Father that we saw last week. Connecting back to Exodus 3, the one who is, was, is to come. And then to the seven spirits who are before the throne. So this question, all right, who is this? It's talking about the Spirit. Why is he designated the seven spirits? And then from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him, this is Jesus who loved us, freed us, uh, by, freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priest to God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. So the first thing I want you to see is all throughout Revelation, the Holy Spirit is designated as the, the seven spirits, or it's the sevenfold something. 
And so Revelation uses a lot of numbers to uh, not just give us the physical number. It's not mathematics. It's, it's art, and it's to be symbols. And so when you see or hear seven, you need to think certain things. You need to think kind of completion, and you need to think creation and new creation. So he's the sevenfold spirit here. And then you look chapter 4, when we're around the throne at chapter 4, Verse 5, it's talking about God the Father on the throne, and around the throne are the 24 elders seated on the throne, clothed in their white garments, golden crowns, and then there's uh, peals of thunder, lightning, rumbling, and then the seven torches of fire. So here's these seven, so he's the seven torches of fire around the throne. And then in chapter 5, verse 7, it's talking about Jesus and the Spirit. Verse 6, it's the Lamb, and he's got these seven horns with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits that he then sends to the earth. So you have the sevenfold spirit, and then it's the, these three images are fire, horns, eyes. So fire is the burning presence, the horns is the power, and then the eyes are the ability to see. And then from there, Jesus then sends him down to the earth. And so this, this echo, so I want you to think about this echo, the sevenfold spirit is from God and it's actually echoing uh, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2. And so all of these, every verse in Revelation has some type of Old Testament echo. And every one of the echoes is to take you back to a place in the Old Testament and it's supposed to fill your mind with images and pictures. And so this is an echo back to Isaiah 11, which is part of this beautiful picture of who the Messiah is going to be when he comes. And it starts in 6 and runs through 12 and has two kind of ascending peaks. And it goes 6, 7, 8, 9. And then 9 is the great promise of the Messiah. He's going to be uh, the, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And then he will be mighty God, wonderful counselor, um, prince of peace. You know, that incredible promise on his shoulders will rest the government, this crescendo in 9. And then it cycles back down and then builds up and then 11, Isaiah 11, is this tremendous promise of what the Messiah is going to be like when he comes. And verse 1 and 2 talk about his endowment as the king. He's going to be God's king who has God's spirit on him. And then verses 3 through 5 is his rule, the way he changed the world in 6 through 9 and then his significance. But I have in your bulletin there, look at verse 2 from Isaiah 11. Because remember here, the sevenfold spirit, or the fullness of the work of the spirit, this is one of the references that's talking about what does it mean to experience the full work of the spirit. And you can see, I kind of printed it out there so you can see it. The, there's, there's seven designations. The first one is the spirit of God, and then there's three couplets. So there's three, um, they call it Hinandeus, where it gives you two words that mean kind of this totality. So a Hinandeus is kind of like if you, you know, like in those kids' books where I think it's like the mother bunny or whatever tells the other little bunny. I hadn't paid attention when we've read this one, but it's, it says something, you know, things like, I love you from your head to your toe. And uh, the idea with head to toe is not like, you know, the hand is not like, well, what about me? You don't, you don't love this part of me? Well, no, head to toe is, is a Hinandeus. It means the whole thing. And each one of these little couplets, wisdom and understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, and fear, Hinandeus, that gives us the whole thing of what it's talking about. And this actually is the illustration of what it means to have the presence of the Holy Spirit. What are his marks? What does he do? Look at the first one. It's the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Second, counsel and might. Knowledge and fear of the Lord. That first one, wisdom and understanding, this is talking about the totality of what it means to have your mind enlightened and transformed by the Spirit. 
This is, in one sense, it's, it's knowledge, but it's so much more than knowledge. Actually, this is a, a reference back to Proverbs, which Proverbs walks you through a path of education and formation. And the, the actual triad in Proverbs is you need knowledge, understanding, and then wisdom. And this is how you learn any subject. And uh, for those of you who are classical education fans in the room, that's actually the, the pattern of classical education. The idea is that we've been designed in certain way to progress through certain stages to learn anything. Stage one is knowledge, where you have to get all the facts about the subject you're learning. Stage two is understanding, where you take those facts and then you put them together in some type of organic kind of whole. And then stage three is wisdom. You now know how to apply those facts to where you are kind of in your world. And like you med students, you can see this is actually the progression of your education. You start in med school just learning the facts. So some of you are studying for step where you're just stuffing the facts in your head. It's actually easier when you're like five, six, and seven years old. So maybe you started too late because uh, your brains are sponges, but you just stuff the facts in your head. Then on all of your rotations and your different residencies, you're, it's, it's understanding. How do I take these facts I learned in anatomy class and I start to integrate them into a whole and then hopefully, at some point, you become a doctor who's wise that can now see individuals, this is life, how to live well, how to, in, excellent, uh, or in essence, how to kind of prioritize things and then execute, game plan and execute. And then the third one, it's knowledge and the fear of the Lord, but this is, this is the relational context. So not so much the mental, when knowledge is used in this, in a relational context, it doesn't mean information. Knowledge and fear are the two sides of a healthy, emotional, relational um, connection to the Lord. Knowledge is intimate relationships. So when the Bible talks about knowledge in relational categories, you know, it's like in Genesis chapter 4. Adam knew his wife Eve and she became pregnant. Like, oh, we don't need to explain that. You understand what it's talking about. There's a relational connection. And then fear of the Lord is proper reverence. Understanding who he is, who we are in light. So you actually see the, the presence of the Holy Spirit, his, his description, what he does is he produces these type things. These are the things he produces in your life. He makes your mind come awake with wisdom. He makes your heart come alive with affection. And then he makes your life, he, he helps you walk the path that he wants you to walk. So the question is, what does it mean to be a spirit-filled person? It means you become people who, uh, who, are, who are thoughtful and wise, who are emotional, emotionally healthy, and people who are faithful in their living. So as you look at your life, which one of these three things do you need? You know, the goal, see, all of us will naturally lean to one of the three and the danger is to, lean, we, we know the thing we naturally lean to, then we exalt it and then critique the others because we feel the lack. And churches can do that and individuals can do that. And it's not healthy because the whole goal is to be whole. God wants you to be whole and you need all three. But the beautiful thing about the body of Christ is none of us can have all three. We all need other people. So think about which one do you do well, do you naturally lean towards, then we need you and your fe fellow Christians, they need you to help them in that area. And then which ones do you need? The fullness of the Spirit brings all three. But now let's look at the next thing. Look at his operation. 
What I want you to see is you look through at Revelation, and there's three things that he often does. He helps you to see, helps you to hear, and then helps you to rise. You see, you hear, you rise. This first one, he helps you to see. What type of operations does he do in our life? Uh, there's four times that are four key structural markers in the book of Revelation where it says, I was in the Spirit, and then on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, in the Spirit. It's chapter 1, verse 10, 4, verse 2, 17, 3, and 21, 10. And each one of those mark a significant shift in the book, in the narrative. It's, 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 a, it's a marker. And each one of those in the spirits. So first he's in the Spirit on the Lord's day, on Sunday, gathered with God's people. And he sees, and then he sees something. That John is gathered, and he's on this island in exile, thinking his, he's at the end of the earth. But there in his presence, in the Spirit, he sees the risen Christ is in their midst. Where two or more gather, he's there with them, and he sees them. And then in chapter 4, he is in the Spirit, and he gets taken up to the heavenly throne room to actually see what's going on in the world from God's perspective. And then in chapter 17, he's in the Spirit, and he gets taken to the wilderness, where he sees the war between the followers of the dragon and the followers of the Lamb. And he gets this vision that we're actually in something more than uh, we're, we're in this warfare, and then in 21, he's taken up to see the new heavens and the new earth come down. But the first thing that the Spirit does is in the Spirit, the Spirit gives you perspective. He helps you see things you couldn't see otherwise. You know, it's kind of like in this room right now, there's flowing. I mean, who knows what these are causing <laughs> to your body. But there's flowing in this room like radio waves. And you can't hear them because your ears aren't designed or in tune to actually pick them up. But they're there. And one of the things Revelation tells us is there's actually this spiritual world that's all around us, but we're not in tune so we can hear or see it. And we need the Holy Spirit to give us new eyes and give us new ears to tune us into the spiritual realities all around us. So maybe you need to think this morning, all right, what, how do I need the Spirit's help to help me really see? Maybe there's people this week who you need help seeing them as God sees them. You've only seen them this week as irritations or annoyances. And maybe you need help seeing them as God sees them. Or maybe you need help seeing that your greatest problem right now, no matter where you are and what you're doing, is not somebody else. It's not a person. Because the Holy Spirit will help you see that our war is not with flesh and blood, but it's with the spirits and principalities of this present darkness. Or maybe you need help seeing that you've seen certain things in all week. You've seen things as obstacles and irritations. And you need the help of the Holy Spirit to help you see the, these things as opportunities. That the Lord is shaping you and he's working into your life endurance, which will produce character, which will produce hope. And these things aren't annoyances. You know, sometimes we're too quick to dismiss or disdain people or things because we don't have the eyes of the Spirit to see what the Lord is doing. But also this helps us see and experience his presence. Every time, no matter where the spirit takes them in the spirit, he sees and experiences God in a new way. And that's what we need. Maybe one of the things we need more than anything else is ask the Lord, help me to see you and to encounter you. I was struck by this quote where Charles Spurgeon, a great Baptist preacher in the 19th century, um, they had Monday night prayer meetings that he said, these are the most important meetings of our church every week. 
And at the end of his ministry, he would talk about those prayer meetings, and he would say, some of us know at times what it is to be almost too happy to live. The love of God has been so overpoweringly experienced by us on some occasions. only happened a few times, but it happened on some occasions that we have almost had to ask for a stay of the delight because we couldn't endure anymore. It's like, do you know what it's like to experience that? Or do you desire it? The Holy Spirit will work in your heart the desire to help me experience and see you like that. That's not all he does. He doesn't just help us see. He helps us hear. One thing we'll see is the refrain. You can see the first one is in chapter 2, verse 7. And every time there's seven um, addresses or letters that are sent out to seven churches. And here's kind of the cycle. Jesus speaks to John. John writes it down and sends it to the church. At the church, they have the letter read. And as the letter's read, the Spirit speaks to the church. So that's the cycle. Jesus speaks, they write it down, the church opens it up, reads and speaks it, and then you hear the Spirit's voice. And at the end of every letter, it says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So in every situation, the Spirit is speaking, and it's the Spirit that allows us to hear His voice. He makes the voice of the, the risen Jesus a living reality. And that's the whole goal of why we gather and worship, and we open up His Word so that we hear His voice. I mentioned earlier Jonathan Edwards, and when he was... Uh, a young man when he was in his 20s. He, he graduated from college at like 18 or 19. Don't be impressed. They started earlier then. Started when he was like 15. So uh, he, he was very intelligent, but it's not. And uh, he started pastoring a church in New York City and started when he was 18. And uh, he wrote uh, about his life called A Personal Narrative. And uh, so when he was 20 in 1723, he wrote this account. He said uh, about how the Holy Spirit made the word just come vibrantly alive in his life. He said, I had the greatest delight in the Holy Scriptures. Oftentimes in reading it, every word seemed to touch my heart. I seemed often to see so much light exhibited by each and every sentence and such a, fre a refreshing food communicated that I could not get along in reading, often dwelling long on one sentence to see the wonders contained in it. That's a beautiful testimony from a 20-year-old talking about how the Word comes alive in his life. And it wasn't like that every single time he opened it up. He had, he had seasons, but there were certain special seasons where the Holy Spirit gifted him with a special connection to the Word. He came alive. Actually, the next time it happened in his life was in 1737. So he's 34 years old at this time. And uh, he said, once in prayer, I had a view that for me was extraordinary of the glory of the Son of God, and I saw His wonderful, great, full, pure, sweet grace and love, and His meek gentleness. And the person of Christ appeared to me with the excellency great enough to swallow up all thought and conception. And this continued for about an hour, which kept me the greater part of the time in a flood of tears and weeping aloud. And he had this experience reading the Word. He was actually reading Revelation chapter 5, and it was the vision of the risen Christ as both lion and the lamb that the Holy Spirit enlightened to so move him. And then he wrote a sermon about it. The sermon he preached the next Sunday is one of the most famous sermons in American history called The Excellencies of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful sermon. But in each case, it's the Spirit who's making the Word come alive so that he hears the voice of the Lord speaking to him. 
to? Do you hear his voice? One of our goals when we gather on Sunday, and this is from Psalm 95 in, in Hebrews, where it says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, but believe, hear. The Holy Spirit brings hearing. And the third thing he does is he brings life. You know, in chapter 11, there's this uh, kind of strange symbol, these two figures in chapter 11, which are these two great witnesses. There's a lot of debate about who they are, but they're in the world, and they're two witnesses, and they're witnessing, uh, proclaiming the truth of the Lord, and the world hates them, and the world persecutes them, and eventually they get murdered, struck down in cold blood. And then it says, after three and a half days, the Spirit, in chapter 11, verse 11, breathes life into them so they rise again. And this is the third thing that the Spirit does. He brings and breathes new life. See, this is an echo to Ezekiel 34 and 35 and 36, where you have this valley of dry bones, and the Spirit brings life and brings, uh, raises the dead to life. And do you know what it is to experience that? The power and the hope that something that once was dead in you by the power of the Spirit can be raised to new life. You know, as we were in Israel a couple weeks ago, I think one of the more, as I think about the trip, one of the more moving moments is uh, we, we went to the garden tomb, and uh, it's a replica. In essence, it gives you a, a historical replica of what Jesus' tomb would have been like. Probably not the location, but at least gives you a good sense of this is what a garden tomb would have been like. And you can kind of go in, and then you can come out. And just kind of going down in, and then coming out, it just... Uh, it hit me that this is the dynamic of the Christian life. We can rise daily in death, and then, or we can go down in death every day and rise again to new life. Like, I don't just have to experience this in Israel at this location. The power and presence of the Spirit, I can experience this every day. St. Augustine has this beautiful meditation in the city of God where he talks about why in Genesis 1... Does it say it was evening and then morning? That's the pattern, evening and morning. So we're kind of tuned to think the day begins in the morning and it ends in the evening. But he says that's not the way it is. It starts evening and then ends morning. He says maybe it's because God's trying to work the resurrection reality into our everyday life. That your life actually begins in darkness it begins in night, and then by the power of the Spirit, every day you rise to newness of life. And you can experience that by the power of the Spirit every day. And one of the things we want to celebrate when we come is we come on the first day of the week to celebrate the resurrected Christ and His power. So maybe all week you've gone into the darkness of relational discord. Then you can pray that the, the Lord this morning will rise. Your peace can rise. Or maybe all week you've gone into the darkness of discouragement. You can ask the Lord to resurrect my hope. Or the darkness of weariness. And ask Him to resurrect my strength. Or the darkness of doubts. And He'll resurrect your faith. Or all week maybe you've been wounded. And He can resurrect your hope, your faith, and your love. Each morning rise again to new. Threefold invitation. Come. To the one who hears, come. To the one who's thirsty, come. And notice it's the spirit and the bride who now say. And if you read the story of Revelation, who's the bride? The bride is the church. 
And see, the beginning of the book of the Revelation, the church is embattered, it's wounded, it's weary, it's lost its first love, and the Spirit's crying out, return to me. They're lukewarm and they're cold. And he says, return to me. They've given themselves over to the teachings, false teachings. And he says, return to me. And then they're martyrs who are under the throne, weary, and they're crying out, how long, O Lord? When will you avenge our blood? How long? And then here at the end, that church that's wounded, that's weary, that's struggling, that's failing, has been transformed. And now she's the beautiful bride, dressed in white, radiant in splendor, getting ready for the marriage feast with her husband, the lamb. And then now here at the very end, in the beginning, the spirit speaks to the church. And now here at the end, the spirit is speaking through the church. And the Spirit through the church issues this threefold invitation. And the question is, who are they asking to come? There's three of them. Come. Come, all you who have ears to hear, and then come, all you who are thirsty. It's interesting, who? And I wonder if the Spirit's not actually giving us as a church uh, kind of our threefold marching orders, our task. What invitations do we issue every single week and every time we gather? I think the first come is directed because it's just, it's in the vocative. It's just come. He's like, all right, who's he talking to? I think he's actually talking to the Lord, to Jesus Christ himself. This is the, the, the ancient cry of the church, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. The first cry of the church is vertical in worship. Come. We want to be a people of your presence. The only thing that marks us is your presence. You come. Come to redeem us. Come to dwell among us. Come to fix this. We don't know how to fix this. You come. That's the first cry. And then notice the second one is to everyone who has ears. That's kind of an odd thing. You say, well, who has ears? Well, most, most people but this is a symbolic way, you know, it's all, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And I think this is a reference back to, to Deuteronomy and to the Shema, one of the, the central uh, calls of the people in the Old Testament is, Hear, O Israel, hear. The Lord your God is one. This is a confession. It's a call to God's people. So this isn't a vertical call. It's a horizontal call, but it's to all God's people, to all who hear, hear his voice. Come, gather together. Don't neglect gathering together so you can encourage one another by hearing his voice. It's a call to us to come. And then the third, notice who it's a call to. Come to the one who is thirsty. And I think this is a call to the world. To all those who are so weary and thirsty, come and drink from living water. I think you see the three movements as a call to worship, a call to discipleship, and then a call to mission and evangelism. Call, come to all who are thirsty, who desires to drink without price. Come and drink. It's the same call that Jesus issued to the woman in Samaria at the, at the well. That uh, to come, if, whoever drinks of this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks from the living water that I give will never thirst again. And that's our primary or one of our fundamental calls is a call out to the world to recognize your thirst and come and drink. You know, one of the things that struck me as we were in Israel, because we were in there just after the rainy season, so it was in full bloom and it was luscious. And even then, fresh water is a precious thing. And you live in that kind of world, there's nothing more important than water. And you know, we might have a skewed 
uh, relationship with water because, you know, it's just everywhere. I mean, think about the water that you have access to. And we have purified water. We have spring water. We have glaciered water. We have flavored water. We have enhanced water. We have vitamin water. We even have water that is smart. We have smart water. So all you guys studying for step, we'll get you some smart water. We've got drinks that can, you know, think about the things that just our drinks promise us. We have drinks that promise us to give us energy for five hours. We have drinks that promise to slim us fast. We have drinks that promise us all kinds of things. But I don't think we have any drink that promises us to fully live. Where Jesus says, if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. Is there any water that can promise to satisfy your thirst forever? We have all types of cups that we go to drink from to satisfy our soul. But no matter what they are and where they are or how much they cost, we thirst again. Yesterday was the Kentucky Derby, and so Cynthia and I have an uh, affection for the Kentucky Derby because we lived in Louisville for five years, and uh, here's some insider info. If you ever go to Louisville, uh, go, don't go to the Derby on Saturday. Go to the Oaks on Friday. So the Oaks is when all the locals go, so you get to wear your hat and your bonnet, and you can experience all of the things, but it's not nearly as manic or uh, mayhem. So go on Friday, and uh, you can find, if you're so inclined, you know, the, uh, the official drink of the Kentucky Derby is the mint julep. So if you're not familiar with mint julep, it's a mint leaf, it's bourbon, it's sugar, and it's water. And you can go and uh, you, you have to hunt this down if you want to find it. But there's a Woodford Reserve special Tiffany and Company silver edition of the mint julep. Now, let me describe this for you before I tell you how much it costs. So what you get now, mint julep is only four or five ounces. So only a little bit. But you get a specially designed silver cup that's designed by Tiffany and Company. The sugar is organic raw sugar imported from Brazil. The ice is glacier ice imported or brought from Alaska. The mint is fresh organic mint brought imported from Ireland. And then the bourbon is a special Woodford Reserves Distiller's Best that's a special kind of cast or whatever that he's been uh, working on. So you get all of those things and it will only cost, who wants to guess how much, it's like the price is right. Who wants to guess how much that four ounces of bourbon will cost you? It only costs you $1,000. I mean, it's a deal. You get to keep the cup. It's a souvenir cup. (laughs) So you could go to the Kentucky Derby and you could spend $10,000 on mint juleps And you'll still be thirsty. You'll still be thirsty by the time it comes time for the horses to race. And that's kind of the way the world is. You you can drink from, it doesn't matter if you drink from a $10,000 cup or a $2 Dixie Solo cup, you will still thirst again. 
And any cup you drink from, if you go to drink from the cup of material prosperity, you will thirst again. If you drink from the cup of economic advancement, you'll thirst again. If you try to drink from the cup from popularity, you'll thirst again. If you try and drink from the cup of academic or athletic success, you will thirst again. You drink from the cup of home comfort, ease, security, you will thirst again. Every single well will run dry but this one. And the glory of the gospel and the beauty of the church and the power of the Holy Spirit is he issues an invitation that says, come here you can find living water where you can drink from and find a satisfaction for your soul. Well, you'll never thirst again. So the invitation is come, come and drink. Let's pray together. Lord, we praise you for your word. We praise you for the presence and the power of the spirit. And we pray for everyone here this morning. We, we confess that we are in a dry and weary land where there is no water and there's so many substitutes where we can run to to try and satisfy our soul thirst and all of them no matter how good they are they'll leave us wanting more so i pray for anyone here who's come this morning and they know their soul is dry they know it's weary we pray that you would satisfy their thirst may they come and drink now pray for anyone here who's come in this room this morning and they're wounded and weary it's been a long week and uh if relational discord has seemed to cause something to die in them, we pray for resurrected life. Raise, raise the peace in their heart. Raise it up. Pray for anyone who's discouraged. Raise up hope this morning. Anyone who's weary, raise up strength. Anyone who doubts, raise up faith. Anyone who's wounded or afraid, raise up love and faith in their hearts. And do all these things by the presence and power of your spirit. In his name we pray.